Hi, this is Tom Lutz, Editor-in-Chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Before we get to this week's radio show, I just want to remind everybody that we are in the middle of our winter fun drive. We get to do the radio show. We get to bring you the reviews and essays and interviews that we have every day on the website. We get to bring you the quarterly journal and all of the other good and interesting and fun stuff that LARB does because of the support of listeners and readers like you. This is the time of year when we need your help the most. We have a matching fund that is going to match every dollar that you give us. Now's the time to give. Thanks so much. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today with my co-host, Medea Ocher, the Managing Editor at LARB. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So today we're talking with Clifford Johnson, author of The Dialogues, Conversations About the Nature of the Universe, a graphic novel about some weighty scientific questions. It was published recently by MIT Press. And I know, Dea, that you weren't there with us in the interview, but it was really great. It was like a wide-ranging conversation about religion and science, how we talk about science, what we do with science, all of that kind of stuff. Oh, that sounds interesting. I was worried about having this conversation with Clifford because I always use physics as one of the subjects that I just <laughs> just cannot understand, like net neutrality. No matter how many times it is explained to me, I have no idea. And sometimes I reach a point where I, I feel like I have a grasp on what that person has just said. And then about two seconds later, I've lost it all. And this book really does kind of get into the specifics and mm. there are actually equations in it. It gets into the weeds of physics. But also does it in a light way with the comic form to kind of help you. It's all staged as a series of conversations between people in right. various contexts. Yeah, But the ideas are just as complicated. And so I was a little concerned that I would show up and show nothing for having read the actual book <laughs> in, ter in terms of retaining that knowledge. I admitted to him that I was like, I think there's large parts of this book that I still don't understand and I'll have to reread. It's but like a physics brain is a different kind of brain. A literary brain is also has a unique perspective on the world, right? There's a way that you organize information, that you understand the relationship between bodies and other environmental phenomena in physics and in art, I guess, that is is very different. But, you know, one of the things that I found fascinating about Clifford also is that, you know, he oftentimes does this translation work between kind of hard science that he works on and kind of the entertainment world. So he's a science advisor, a technical advisor for a number of Hollywood films, including Thor Ragnarok, which I thought was really fun and did you see that movie by any i didn't oh. i was worried about the physics well and that i wouldn't understand should be somebody should be worried about the physics of chris hemsworth muscles in that in Ooh. that movie it was absolutely unreal it's like Ooh. sometimes i feel like i don't know that that body can actually hold any more man inside of it <laughs> <laughs> i can't say i am that familiar with chris hemsworth manly body but i believe you Okay, well, I, and I believe, you need to get on Google Images right now and check that out because it will blow you away. The <laughs> physics of that man's muscles are truly astounding. And <laughs> some physical trainer in Hollywood right now is a star because of being able to transform that body in that way. I believe it. Anyways, well, let's talk about real physics instead of physiques Ooh. and get to that conversation with Clifford Johnson. Great. Thank you. 
We're excited to have Clifford Johnson in the studio with us. Dr. Johnson is a professor of physics at the University of Southern California. And in addition to his academic work, he actually has quite a lively life as a science advisor for various movies and TV shows, including most recently Marvel's Thor, Ragnarok, which I'm actually excited to go see later today, and National Geographic Channel's Genius. His latest work, The Dialogues, Conversations About the Nature of the Universe, a rather lofty title, just a small, small idea, is a compendium of nine discussions illustrated comic book style that range from the science of cooking to string theory and the multiverse. The Dialogues was published in November by MIT Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Johnson. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's just start out with why a comic book to talk about the nature of the universe? Well, it's sort of a long story. It didn't actually start out, the idea didn't start out that way initially, but it got there fairly naturally in the end. The main thing I wanted to do was change the way we we do the typical sort of science book that people in my field are supposed to write. The usual ones are great, but I thought we could expand what we do. And I thought having a discussion, having people feel that they can be almost part of a conversation about science mm. between ordinary people out there in the world was something that isn't really celebrated, although it happens a lot. And you certainly don't see it in typical science books. So I thought it would be great to have a science book that was entirely conversations. You know, actually get glimpses of the science through the conversations. And then I began to think, wouldn't it be nice if you could actually see who was having the conversations? That right. would be interesting. You might relate somewhat to the people because we're curious about other other human beings. Mm -hmm. And so that might be a way to draw you in. And then it went to, well, wouldn't it be nice to actually see where these people are? Science <laughs> isn't just in the lab or in a seminar right. room. It's out there in the world. Yeah. And I should mention that these conversations in Dr. Johnson's book, they take place on trains, in a restaurant. They're in kind of everyday situations. Exactly. And so the more and more I thought about the project, the more visual, the more the visual component became mm. really important. And then it suddenly occurred to me that, oh, my goodness, this is not a prose book with a lot of illustrations or pictures. This is a fully illustrated, you know, piece of narrative art. Oh, it's a comic book. It's a graphic novel. And that's really what I'm doing. And then I really got excited about what this could be. Can we talk a little bit about the form, the dialogues, right? Which in the mm -hmm. preface you talk about is like, it has this long history, obviously, mm -hmm. Aristotle, all of those like famous thinkers. And it has actually a basis in philosophy that then you are taking to a kind of an explanation of how physics works, but almost physics as a kind of philosophy, like a way of gaining purchase on major questions about the world that we live in, how it operates, and that sort of thing. That's what physics actually is. Unfortunately, not necessarily presented that way when we first learn it. It's, for some people, it might be considered more like it's just an exercise in torture. But actually, <laughs> when you step back from it, it's a wonderful journey of exploration well, all of science is a wonderful journey right. of exploration into understanding more about our world. And physics itself grew out of the traditions that you talk about. The old name for physics was natural philosophy, in fact, sort of philosophizing about the natural world. So it, it has all those roots. And of course, I should, I should not lay claim to having done this for physics. Galileo was really the, <laughs> the most famous person yeah. who did that. The, a lot of the great ideas we know Galileo for, his realization of how various planetary bodies move, you know, his observations about the phases of Venus and the moons of Jupiter and things like that, those were all reported 
those sorts of ideas and his observations were reported in dialogue form in what were the sort of popular books of the day, because that was how, you know, the sort of journals we're familiar with now, where you report your findings and your colleagues read it. That was not really the form in which he had access to. That form hadn't really come along yet. Right. And so he wrote popular dialogues of discussing ideas. And that's a wonderful form that I'm trying to resurrect and bring into the contemporary world. It's also a comic book about science, which is not normally the form in which we read about science, right? So, And you've never written something quite like that before. So I'm wondering if you can talk about what was it like taking these ideas into a very different media form? That's a great question. And the thing I realized, once I realized what I really was doing or could do was a graphic book, you know, a serious graphic book about science, I realized that there actually really wasn't anything out there like that. There's a lot of great science in comic form, but there's still within that form, there are very different ways you can do things. There's mm-hmm. biography and sure. there's all kinds of other ways. And there's sort of lecture comics, if you like, mm-hmm. which are illustrated lectures. These are all awesome things. This is not that. So right. I realized that I didn't have another really good example. And I mostly then worked on it in secret in the sense that I didn't show it to anyone. I admire people who can work on something that's fresh and original and tell everyone about it at the same time and inoculate themselves against all the voices that are telling them how it should be. I can't do that. I basically have to just work on the thing, stop trying to explain what it isn't, Mm. and just go, here it is, this is what it is. And and so it's a very slow form to work in. I'm doing everything myself. And so drawing and writing, drawing and writing and learning the craft as I'm doing it. Yeah. And so I basically just didn't show it to anybody for many, many years. I was just working on it, chipping away, doing my, you know, professor by day thing and then (laughs) what have you. And so it was a very interesting process because I I had an idea of what this could be, a, a new way of inviting people into nonfiction science. And I just had to do it and just do the experiment, as it were. I'm kind of curious, what were some of the source materials that you were using? Like, were there comics that you found helpful for staging, like dialogues? Or like, how did you learn, basically, how to write the comic form? You know, I've always been interested in comics since I was a kid. I I would read a lot, then left it for many years. When the sort of that wonderful explosion of graphic novels that started happening, especially in the late 90s. Yeah. I occasionally start looking back and going, oh, that's an interesting form. I didn't connect it to this project yet. Definitely um, for telling then, much more complicated yeah, stories yeah, than, yeah. Yeah, but then in the, in the sort of mid-2000s when I realized that this science book that I wanted to do really could be a very interesting new venture in graphic form. I then started studying those other kinds of graphic novels a lot. But then you're studying at the level of how narrative art really works. I really put myself Mm. through a self-study course of that form in, in all its forms, from superhero comics to indie graphic novels of various kinds and what have you. And there are all kinds of different ways. There are various kind of common themes. There are all kinds of interesting books about those books you can read. And then I was also just teaching myself art. I was just drawing a lot. I was studying art of various kinds. And then I was studying the whole practice of how you actually manufacture a graphic novel, the old Mm. ways and the new ways, the traditional ways, the digital ways and what have you. I was just learning and absorbing all of that. I love doing that. Uh, It's part of how we operate as theoretical physicists. We tend to, we have a research problem and we need to invent or teach ourselves entirely new forms of mathematics or what have you in order to tackle that problem. So I just sort of pretty much uh, did it 
in that mode as well. This was a thing I wanted to do. What do I need to learn to do it? And and so I just went out there and sort of consumed uh, as much as I could and synthesized my own way of doing things. There's still a lot to learn. I think anyone who really studies the form can look and see that I I do okay as a graphic <laughs> artist, but I've a long way to go to have the sort of fluidity that a real master would have. Can you talk to me a little bit about the writing process? Because I imagine that you are trying to distill very complex ideas that have their own history of emergence, right? Both like mm. the the kind of scholarly production of them, but also the vocabularies that then get generated around them. And yet you find a way to kind of break them down. Uh, one example would be the kind of ways that physical laws get changed and challenged in ways that we, some of which we understand, a lot of which we don't totally understand around black holes, mm-hmm. right? So how did you, from an editorial perspective, take all of your deep knowledge and then find a way to translate it into what are, albeit very heady and weighty, conversations, but regular everyday conversations nonetheless? Well, it comes with practice, as does anything, in my opinion. And so I do a lot of, well, of course, part of my contract as a professor is to teach at all levels. So I get practice there. <laughs> to break it down uh, for new recruits to the to, field. Indeed. Yeah. But I also, I do a lot of, you know, appearing on TV documentaries and things like that. And you have to find ways of trying to get a good door into the subject for people. And mm-hmm. the door varies from person to person. So you learn different ways and different contexts in which you can use certain kinds of analogies. I also, and I think this is a really valuable test of the skill is I work with filmmakers a lot when they're trying to find ways of getting some kinds of science or ideas into their film. And there's, you know, there's gatekeepers saying, no, you can't, you can't include this. This this is going to be too complicated. So I have to find ways sometimes of distilling, of making it relatable or whatever the current phrase is, things like that. (laughs) So it just comes with practice. But I, I think the main thing for me is that I, just try and put myself in the position of the reader or listener and get a sense of where they're coming from, how they're in the conversation, and that helps me find a way. What do you relate. think is the biggest barrier to kind of translating scientific ideas for the general public? Another way of asking this question is like, how does the general public generally think about hmm. science? And Great. then kind of how do you break through that? Great question. The biggest barrier is actually the larger culture in which we're all immersed, to get fancy for a moment. I think that we're constantly told that science is this collection of really special, hard things to understand that very specialized people do. And it's kind of off in a corner away from the rest of the culture in a way that I think is actually unfortunate and frankly wrong. But that's Mm. the situation we live in. And there's certain phrases that people, they're almost like trigger phrases. You mentioned quantum physics or relativity, and people immediately get ready. Uh, Yeah, yeah. they get ready for something difficult. So I've actually learned sometimes that I just don't even use those terms. I'm talking to someone about a bit of physics, and I just tell them the ideas, and they get Mm. it. And then at the end, I go, oh, actually, that was some quantum physics. And then they go, oh, my goodness. That was quantum physics? Okay. Because we're tuned to certain topics come with these difficult labels on them. I mean, labels saying they are difficult. Mm -hmm. And that means people immediately begin to shut down. They start going, oh, I was never good at this at school, so I'm not going to get what you say. And that's the difficult barrier to get through. And if you can find a way of getting people to be open, I think science just turns out to be very straightforward 
sets of logic with maybe some facts here and there to anchor that logic on and a deductive process that everybody mm-hmm. loves from watching yeah. detective shows sure. and things like sure. that. Everyone can relate to those things. Procedurals, that, yeah. yeah. It's the same kind of thinking, but people automatically think science is somehow much more difficult. And, you know, there's, of course, there's a lot of stuff that comes from extra training and things like that and lots of practice. But the basic beats of telling a set of scientific ideas should not be more complicated than a good mystery story. Are there particular kind of areas in science? Let's say, so for example, you're a professor of physics. Are there particular areas within physics that are just naturally sticky to a general audience? Meaning sticky in this case means like naturally appealing, where there's Hmm. like an inherent interest in the fundamental question that you're asking. And what are those kind of questions? I think there are several different areas, but all of them I think are a mixture of very much the sort of why is that the way it is kinds of questions, just sort of natural curiosity. Mm. And then there's what I, you know, borrowing a little bit from the the sort of comic book world, or at least the superhero comic world, there's the whole origin story aspect that people love. Sure. Either the origin story of something they're very interested in, whether it's an object or an idea, or whether it's our own origin story. Yeah. And so in physics, there's a lot of those. Right? A lot of the stuff I work on are the origin of all the stuff that matter is made of and where that all came from, you know. So people mm-hmm. love that narrative when you tell them that we're made of stuff that was manufactured in stars. Yeah, well, and what's so, that famous line that we are stardust? We right? are stardust, that, that... and it's a true thing. And the adventure story of investigation that you get led to in order to follow that and really see that that's a true thing is a wonderful thing. You learn about how stars are made, how they evolve. So you learn more about our own sun, which we all love. You learn that the sun is just one kind of a wide variety of stars. And then they have their own sort of life, as it were, their own sort of stages that they go through. And some of those stages are incredibly wonderful and beautiful and violent. And the products of that stuff a supernova explosion, for example, Mm -hmm. produces the kinds of elements that we need to make some of the stuff that's here on Earth, including us. Carbon and the heavy metals, yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. So origin stories everyone loves. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Clifford Johnson about his new book, The Dialogues, Conversations About the Nature of the Universe. We'll return to that conversation in a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. Dan Lopez is here with us today to give us a book recommendation. Dan is the author of The Show House, out from Unnamed Press. And Dan, what book will you be recommending? Hey, so excited to be here today. I am going to recommend They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. It's a new essay collection by Hanif Abdurraqib. It is a series of music vignettes. So Hanif is the culture critic and music critic, and he uses the one to talk about like sort of the broader culture. So he goes and he talks a lot about going to music shows. Like He talks a lot about Fall Out Boy and different types of genres. And the whole collection is sort of interspersed with these vignettes about Marvin Gaye singing the national anthem at the 1983 NBA All-Star Game. And through each of them, he kind of builds on this idea that it's a very rich vein in the collection that builds this idea of how impossible and yet how it happens, the beauty of black joy in the face of America and the history of America and the ongoing struggles and that we see play out all the time. So 
it's this brilliant like look at how you can find happiness while at the same time grieving. And he comes back and back to this idea in the most unique, interesting ways. Like he'll be talking about going to a concert, an emo reunion concert, for instance. And then this is 10 years after some albums come out, the band is touring again. And he turns this guy in this audience who also seems to like kind of not be enjoying it. At the end, they connect on this idea that Sure, this music was great 10 years ago, but now this guy has a wife and has a daughter and the lyrics of blaming women for all this like emo problems that are Mm -hmm. coming up in the songs, like just don't feel right. And it's like, how do you kind of come back to the idea and how do you revisit the past while still moving forward? And so there's a lot of back and forth in the collection. There's a lot of beauty in it. There's a lot of sadness in it. And it's a real page turner. I just can't get enough. And they're all very short. So they're like five pages long each thing so you can kind of read it and sit with the image for a moment before moving on to the next one that sounds really interesting i've actually grabbed it when i saw it at the office and i've been holding on to it for a while and i was a little worried that it was for music nerds and that one had to be sort of musically informed Mm -hmm. to really get the most out of it and so i've held off reading it out of embarrassment essentially Mm -hmm. no not at all in fact i'm kind of really persnickety about reading anything to do with music this is my own bias, but I kind of feel like musicians' lives go in one two ways. They either are really dedicated to their art and they're kind of live boring lives. They just make great music <laughs> or they have this like decadent lifestyle. And neither one of those modes is something I find particularly interesting. So I think what Abdul Rakib has found is a way to talk about music and how it works in the culture. I don't know half the musicians he's talking about in this book. I may have heard the names, but I certainly don't listen to their music. Still, you can make those connections and you can learn a lot and it's deeply moving. That so pick great. it up. Tell us the title of the book again and the author. Please. Absolutely. The title is They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. And the author is Hanif Abdurakib. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. That was Dan Lopez, author of The Show House, out from Unnamed Press. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Clifford Johnson, author of The Dialogues, Conversations About the Nature of the Universe. Yet origin stories are also where you see this incredible cultural friction between science on the one hand Mm -hmm. and religion, both of which offer origin stories. And in the book, there is this really great dialogue that takes place between a man and a woman on a train, and the woman is presenting the kind of science side. Well, the dialogue is actually about black holes, I think, right? It's about lots of things. Like like many conversations, none of these conversations are really about a particular thing. They ramble from topic to topic, and that's deliberate because conversations are like that. They're different from, you know, you're going to now have a lecture on so-and-so. This chapter is about X, right? That's how we usually do it. And then you just talk about X. I allow the conversations to ramble a mm. little bit and touch on different things because it's also a great way of showing how lots of things are connected. That like the, range, yeah, yeah. the range, yeah. So one of the things in this multivariate right, the people conversation on the train, that they yeah. have mm. is where he's basically feeling like his interlocutor, in this case, the science-identified woman, is kind of taking apart or challenging his notion of God, either by trying to define it in ways that he suddenly becomes less comfortable with or to move away from, say, the theocentric object to something else. And to me, I mean, this is obviously one of the bigger 
confrontations in the culture, whereas like there seems to be science presents a threat to religion, which never it never really made sense to me because it is I think Neil deGrasse Tyson has a great take on this where he's like, as you see the incredible complexity of the universe and our experience of life, how could that not make you more fascinated mm. by what's out there and the miracle in that larger sense of all of it? Right. So I'm also a, I think I probably sympathize with like the deist, right, mm -hmm, that it's mm -hmm. like a grand structure that mm -hmm. we can figure out. But why is there that contest between religion and science? And do you think it needs to be so? I don't think it needs to be so. I think it is certainly the case that it is much more marked and much more confrontational in the United States and I've seen it in many other mm. countries. And we could have a longer conversation about, <laughs> about why, that, why is. that is. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I know, but it is yeah. interesting. In many other countries, which incidentally also maybe have maybe a higher level of basic science education that everyone mm. has or comfort with that, ironically, that confrontation seems to be less. People are less maybe feeling they have to defend religion against science or science against religion. I don't know. I haven't done a, a detailed study, but it <laughs> certainly seems to me that yeah. when you're perhaps digging in your position, perhaps also with a high degree of ignorance about the other's position, you may be a little bit more paranoid, more more scared. And I mean on both sides. Mm. And so I feel that there's definitely been an unfortunate move to just thinking of these things as almost by construction in confrontation with each other. And they really need be. Science does wonderful things. It's a way of interrogating and exploring our world and the things it can and can't do. Mm. And knowing what those are is great. And there are people who are religious who are also very accepting and excited about what science can do and can't do. And they just live with those two sides of themselves. And I don't see anything wrong with that if people choose to be that way. And I just feel that this business where either on the religious side, people are feeling that science is encroaching on their business, which often involves money and power. And um, threatening my origin yeah, story. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah, but basically, it's about it usually money and comes power. down to money and power. Yeah. Or either as a reaction, because scientists sometimes like to oversimplify things. You know, I have a lot of scientist colleagues who would just go, you know, let's just wipe religion off the whole face of the earth and then we'd fix everything. And mm. that's naive. And is also wiping away a huge amount of our culture as a species. So why mm. would you do that? But people think that's a way of doing it. And that's an overreaction in the other direction. Sure. So, yeah, we Humans are flawed. That's, that's so basically are, it. <laughs> one of the things that I also find really a great lesson, if you take nothing else from this, know that humans are flawed. One of the other things that I find fascinating in the book, which you just touched on, was the idea that science is a method and it's a way of discovering things and it develops its vocabulary and accounts of various things. But there's many times throughout the, the book where you talk about science is incomplete or it's a gesture at something. It's an attempt and it's an ongoing attempt. One of these is in um, when you're discussing Einstein's theory of relativity, I believe, when you're saying, well, it's actually incomplete, but it gives us a building block to move forward. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about some of the things that science, as you were saying before, that science can do and that which it also can't do? Like, what's the limit that science comes up against? Well, the whole process by which science works, 
limits it in, in a way that is is not unhealthy, right? You you mm-hmm. can't know everything all all at once. You, right. You, you right. There's something about the way it is. You always you build on knowledge. You infer new things based on what you found, and and so on and so and forth. And revise what you and, thought and, you and, knew and before. You, and yeah. you revise or refine and so on and so forth. So. That means that, and that whole process, I should also say, is a collective process. We all get involved. Mm. It's a very democratic process, which is one of the reasons it's wonderful. You come up with an idea and you propose it and everyone gets to test it. You just don't get to say this is the way it is and then we just have to obey that. We get to test it. So that's all built into the process of science. That also means then that it can't make declarations about everything in, in one fell swoop. Particularly in physics, there's a way in which you sort of organize the whole process of discovery by a, a set of sort of ever-expanding circles, if you like, ever-expanding scales. You know, I discover things here on Earth, and then I move out, I look up into the sky, I start discovering things, I maybe begin to explore the solar system, I move outwards. I don't, I don't just make these great discoveries about everything for all time, everywhere. We're creatures in the universe that we're also studying, I guess, is part of the thing. So what I'm saying is, is that that means science has a limit to how it works. You end up being able to make a statement about something and test that particular statement's validity. You don't prove the non-existence of things, for example. right? So that's sort of a nice example. I could declare that there's a planet made of pickles or something, you know, somewhere out there in the world. And and I can't prove to you that such a planet doesn't exist somewhere out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you why I think it's probably unlikely, given what I've already observed in the history of science and, and how I know planets tend to form and so on and so forth. Right. But I can't disprove it outright. That's a limitation of science, which I think is great. Because it allows for surprises sometimes mm-hmm. and things like that. Well, would you say in that way that science as a practice, let's say, is characterized by a fundamental openness yes. to what is? That's great. That's a very good way of putting it. It allows for various possibilities. And in fact, it can allow for some extremely unlikely things. At best, we might be able to give you a probability of why a thing may or may not occur or exist and so on and so forth. But there's an openness. A slightly negative way of putting it sometimes is that science is sort of organized skepticism in the sense that you Mm. get to go, okay, propose this thing that you either think is out there for whatever reasons, and then I will interrogate that possibility through a series of, of questions and experiments and what have you. And so you can think of that as very much uh, along the lines of what you might do if you were if you were skeptical about some thing someone was telling you about a friend of yours did this and you mm-hmm. oh, I'm skeptical because I I know that friend and it's unlikely they would do that so let's go through the circumstances and see whether or not it's likely that they really did do that right. thing and so you're skeptical but you're open that it's a possibility and then you you go through the investigation the openness is a great thing to emphasize oh, thank, thank you, you for yeah. that At the same time, I wonder how you feel about science in the public sphere at the current conjuncture. Because one of the things that concerns me is that science seems to be disregarded when we don't like the kind of, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to say truth with a capital T, because Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the, we can't really get that. This kind of truth is a sense of knowing everything all at once. Mm -hmm. But rather when science's findings don't match what those in power want to pursue, Mm -hmm. they just sideline science, which seems to be a very, very (laughs) dangerous place for us to go. 
where we're ignoring rationalism and then instead just focusing on what we want, some of which is emotional, some of which is also economic. What do you see as science's role in culture and society? Speaking a small broadly, question. <laughs> no, no, it's a, I, but one of my favorites. Broadly speaking, I think science belongs in our culture alongside everything else. Okay. Um, that first and foremost. And then we dip into our culture in, in different ways and, and we mix and match different things. And I think science should be there as part of that tasting menu of, of ideas, of expression and all of those things. And just like the rest of our culture, it can also play a role in our democracy and how we collectively get along with each other and agree to move forward make as decisions. a society, make yeah. decisions, etc. So I think governments are able to ignore inconvenient truths when their populace, the populace that they are governing, is either uncomfortable with the methods by which that truth emerged, or perhaps just not well informed about it. The, or the, uncomfortable the, with the ramifications of those findings. Yeah, yeah. Or, or uncomfortable with the ramifications. But I think a lot of the discomfort, I think most of the discomfort comes from still maybe not realizing how the scientific process works mm. in terms of you know where the power is as well i think everyone is suspicious that everybody has an agenda and so if you think that science can also be about just declaring stuff and then everybody believes you then you're likely to also attribute all those scientific findings to somebody else's agenda but if you better understand that science is largely inoculated by agendas just because of the way it works, right? I think that helps you trust more that when a huge number of very careful studies have said a thing, that that means something in the face of maybe a few people yelling the opposite because you understand how those results came about and how to weigh the evidence that's been presented. So the short version of what I'm saying is, is I think in the long run, we do need to be better educated people about how science works, but also who does science and, and who has access to science and in order to have a better democracy. I do a lot of science out there in the public sphere, whether it be through movies or books or what have you, because I think that that really is the solution to some of our biggest problems democracy works better if we're all better educated in all spheres and we're way behind on science just generally. And not just science, but also just people realizing that science isn't done by this sort of select group of special people. Some fact, cabal of like, yeah. d deals with esoteric things. Yeah, that. yeah. It really is. Everybody in every neighborhood from any background can be part of that enterprise that's called science. And I think the more we have of that, the more trust all communities would have of what science produces for us, the tools it gives us to help us solve our problems. So then to make perhaps an, an elegant turn as we wrap up this conversation, is that one of the things that you're trying to do with the form of the comic book to kind of make science more accessible, to take us inside of conversations that are happening on a very high level in labs and universities and institutes and make it something that can be the part of everyday conversation on Absolutely. a train and a cafe, wherever? Absolutely. I firmly believe that these kinds of conversations should be 
had more often by more people, by more kinds of people. I actually believe these conversations do exist. You know, I use public transport a lot and I listen to what people say. And I occasionally do hear the odd conversation about science, which may have been inspired by some <laughs> random thing, like a movie or something. And so this is a celebration of those kinds of conversations. And it's also an invitation for people to start conversations of their own because it's okay to sit on a train and talk about whether or not this is the only universe. Or it's okay to sit on, you know, in a cafe and talk about, well, how exactly does this meal I'm eating, what transformation processes happen to denature these eggs or whatever? It's all science. Right, and, right. And, and we care because it's tasty. These are great conversations that we can have. We've been speaking with Dr. Clifford Johnson, the author most recently of The Dialogues, Conversations About the Nature of the Universe published in November by MIT Press. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you.